This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank Giving Thought in which we look at big issues and themes of the day and how they relate to philanthropy and the work of civil society. Uh, I'm your host Rod Davis um, and this is episode 31 in which we're going to take a special look at the recently launched UK government civil society strategy. Um, now, I have to say, I wasn't necessarily planning uh, to put out an episode in the, the middle of August. Um, I thought I might take a bit of time off. I've got a few interviews lined up and already recorded. So I was going to sort those out, get them together and start again afresh uh, in the autumn. Uh, and then somewhat unexpectedly, um, this week, the uh, the UK government uh, announced quite late in the day that it was going to be announcing uh uh, releasing its civil society strategy um, at midnight on Wednesday, um, which was some, somewhat odd. Um, it was a document, you know, lots of us had been expecting for a while, and they'd had a big period of consultation. Um, I was involved in uh, various kind of ways of in, interacting with that and submitting a response. Um, but we weren't quite sure uh, when it was actually going to end up coming out, which is often the way with these things. Uh, and then it took us all a little bit by surprise by coming out um, this week. Um, I mean, it raises a few eyebrows in a uh, a government uh, document coming out in the middle of August when Parliament is in recess is somewhat peculiar. Um, Not exactly sure what lessons to take from that, but um, hey-ho, that's that's how it happened. So I guess what I wanted to do in the podcast today was just run through um, a few of the things that I thought were most interesting, um, having read the the strategy a couple of times, um, and probably kind of as is the way with this podcast, put them in a bit of a wider context, sort of historical and international context, so that it's uh, a little bit less parochial. Um, And also, I spent all day yesterday bogged down in the details, so I don't really want to do that again. Um, So anyway, um, without further ado, um, let's dive into it uh, and start kind of picking up on various themes and ideas. Okay, so um, I guess the first thing to say about the civil society strategy um, in terms of assessing whether it was successful or not is before you even get into the the detail of the content and, and the ideas and the policies in it, I think it's important to acknowledge that simply having a strategy in the first place is a good thing. Um, I mean, it's certainly not the first time that the government has had a strategy for civil society, but it's the first time for a while that they've done one of this scale. Um, according to the government itself, it's the first one for, for 15 years, although that seems to slightly kind of uh, paint a historical gloss over the uh, big society agenda of David Cameron's government, um, which is peculiar, um, although perhaps understandable. Um, but uh, there are plenty of, of examples before that um, of the government kind of periodically taking uh, quite a sort of 
deep dive look at the the role of the voluntary sector and civil society more widely and kind of the legislation laws and policies relating to it and we'll we'll come on to a few examples of that um a bit later on so i guess having the strategy itself is is good um although not unprecedented but i think at this point in time it's particularly um, important because over the last few years there have been quite a number of challenges for charities and civil society organizations um, in the UK and elsewhere in terms of kind of um, the erosion of public trust in institutions, the challenges of adapting to, to new technology, um, declining finances and uh, the sort of background of um, of austerity in, in the public sphere and, and beyond. So, so I think it's really good just to have a kind of clear signal from government that they do value civil society and the work it does and uh, a clear sense of what they think its role is in the, in the fabric of, of our society. Um, so from that point of view, uh, just the kind of messaging from government of having put it out in the first place um, is a good thing. Um, I think getting slightly more critical, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, in their reaction to the um, the strategy across the across civil society here in the UK, um, took a similar line to me in that they mostly were kind of quite welcoming of the fact that, that it had been done, but were cautious about getting too effusive um only because i think there was a sense that um whilst there was a you know vast amount of content in there and and detail about all sorts of of different areas um you know if anything one could criticize the the strategy for being too broad ranging rather than too narrow certainly um i think there was a sense that there were there wasn't really any one particular very eye catching headline policy and also that quite a lot of the announcements about pots of funding um for for new initiatives were actually things that were being reannounced um not to say that that is a a kind of unacceptable thing to do i think it's a perfectly reasonable thing for for government to reannounce things that it's already announced in isolation in the context of providing a wider overview of how they all fit together but i think it there is a danger that it slightly uh, starts to seem like uh, an attempt to pull the wool over people's eyes if you do it too many times um I think the other broad point that I'd probably make up front is is about the fact that this was a civil society strategy rather than a voluntary sector or a charity sector um, strategy, which, you know, a few years ago one might have expected or certainly a third sector strategy if we were talking 10 years ago or something like that. Um, and that, I think, in itself was was interesting because it represents a a trend that we've seen over the last few years for the government to want to adopt the language of civil society rather than that of sort of specific um, sectors. Um, and this was taken much further, I think, in this strategy than we've ever seen before um, in ways um, that I think were both positive um, and some which I think were slightly more concerning. So I think the the, the real thing that came out of the the, the the strategy as a as a kind of top level point to me is the government is very keen to redraw the definition of civil society as broadly as possible to include pretty much anything and any kind of activity or organization that is some way aimed at um, delivering public value or social value um, and that is to include charities um, and social enterprises, but also uh, parts of the public sector and certainly the private sector, um, which merits an entire uh, section of its own in the report. Now, I think that's good uh, in the sense that 
I think that we are at a moment in time where the opportunities for people to engage with social value are much broader than they have been perhaps in the past. There are new organizational forms um, you know, coming to the fore uh, that might compete with or replace um, traditional ones. Um, you know, we're seeing this in the form of kind of campaigning platforms that are starting to take over some of the work, um, perhaps of kind of traditional charitable campaigning. And um, we're also seeing more emphasis on things like impact investing, social investment, uh, responsible investment in the commercial sphere, um, where the the aim is to kind of blend commercial models with ones that have a social purpose. Um, so you know, we've already seen some of these boundaries being eroded. Um, and and so I think the government redrawing the definition of civil society to be more broad very much plays into that trend and I think is positive from the point of view of future proofing I think you know if you're going to have a big strategy and it's supposed to cover the next decade or 15 or 20 years then I think having a strategy that is able to acknowledge that there might be significantly different ways of achieving social good in the future and you're not tied to one particular legal form or sector is a good thing. Um, I think on the more negative side, the the danger is that by drawing the boundaries so broadly, civil society becomes quite nebulous and, and almost you kind of it's so difficult to to say anything meaningful about something that's, that's drawn that that broadly that everything uh, essentially sort of s- starts to lose all meaning. I think also there are specific concerns that a lot of people might express about the extent to which the private sector has been brought into the definition of civil society. Um, I think in the UK we perhaps feel this less keenly because what we tend to be talking about is sort of corporate social responsibility or responsible business, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I think in in many kind of um, developing world contexts and emerging markets, actually civil society organisations would be extremely concerned um, about allowing uh, the, the corporate world or the kind of private sector to, in, to encroach on their space um, and sort of self-identify as part of civil society. I think there's also a danger of, you know, danger of uh, something that you know, phenomenon we might come to think of as purpose washing, um, which is where if you allow uh, private sector organisations essentially to self-identify as part of civil society, if there are benefits to doing so, um, then you have to start to look out for the danger of people taking advantage uh, of the ability to self-identify in order to get those benefits. Um, and this is something we've seen in the environmental sphere where the, the phenomenon of greenwashing um, has has emerged, where organisations claim to be environmental or to have environmental um, purposes in order to access you know, subsidies and, and tax benefits. Um, so that's something that we would probably have to watch out for. Um, having kind of outlined those top level thoughts and, and a couple of concerns, let's let's dive into some more specific um, uh, thoughts based on kind of particular things that, that come up in the strategy. So the, the first thing I wanted to mention is um, about place and civic engagement. Um, now, they're, they're two slightly separate things and they occur at different points in the strategy document, but they are very closely linked. Now, place is given an entire section uh, in the strategy as one of the sort of five key factors influencing civil society, which I think is a good thing. I think, you know, 
again that's very much of the zeitgeist you know people in civil society and the public sector have been very interested in the idea of place-based approaches i'm using place as a locus for activity for a few years now um it's something i've been working on for for a little while um through the projects i've been doing about civic philanthropy and and kind of the role of philanthropy in um uh, civic identity and the renewal of, of cities um and i was you know a bit involved through conversations with with the government um in kind of shaping some of these ideas and and certainly it was reflected in a bit of the the strategy um where they directly quoted from the the submission that that we put in um the the ideas on civic philanthropy had sort of stemmed from from the work we've been doing which was was great to see um, and actually, as a result of that, um, there was a, a new announcement, which got missed in a, in a few places, I think, because it's sort of slightly hidden amongst the, the wealth of, of other things in the strategy. Um, but a new announcement of a pot of £750,000, which is admittedly not huge in governmental terms, um, but it's there to support the, the growth of new place-based giving schemes around the UK. Um, and actually, I think, you know, the pending the details of how that money is to be deployed, that could be a, a really sort of valuable catalytic pot of money to, to develop the idea of place-based giving and, and philanthropy as a, as a way of supporting local areas. So it'll be really interesting to see how that develops. Um, place also cuts across quite a lot of the discussion of kind of public service commissioning, um, which I will come on to in in a f- in a little while um, in this podcast. Um, although not in a huge amount of detail, I have to say I've done a lot of work on uh, voluntary sector and sort of public sector commissioning in the past. Um, but it's something that plenty of other people talk about, so I'm not going to kind of add my voice to the, to the throng. I'm going to shy away from it a little bit. Um, but the the other way in which place um, emerges quite strongly in the um, civil society strategy um, is through uh, a focus on civic engagement um, and the kind of importance of getting people involved um, in the the places where they live through new means of kind of direct democracy and uh, citizen representation and engagement. Um, and this this is really interesting because this is a stream of thought that we have seen before in relation to the um the voluntary sector or kind of civil society but i think it's one that sometimes gets uh hidden or kind of ignored um when the focus is very strongly on the service delivery aspect of of charities and civil society organizations so what i'm thinking about here is um the role that they play in terms of bolstering democracy both both directly um, in terms of the kind of democracy as an outcome, so organisations that specifically work to uh, to engage people um, in, in the civic uh, process, but also just the kind of the way in which volunteerism and getting involved in social action has a wider knock-on benefit for democracy because it kind of teaches you a lot of the tools of engagement that you need more broadly in order to engage fully in in civic life um and this was an idea that um you know historically came out very clearly in um the nathan report which was a an amazing report um published back in 1952 by a, a commission from the uk government um looking at the sort of future of the voluntary sector in the context a few years after the creation of the welfare state um and it's one of my sort of favorite historical documents about uh, charity in the uk 
Um, but one of the things that's always stuck with me there is a phrase about the importance of the voluntary sector as the nursery school of democracy. Um, and I think that's something that's very much reflected in this civil society strategy and I think is hugely encouraging. Um, and, and I think it's important to say as well, the, the other thing that goes along with that focus on civic engagement in the strategy is a recognition that it's particularly important to engage young people uh, in order to do that. And, and I think that's right. Um, I think, you know, it's it's easy sometimes to be a little bit cynical um, when government or anybody else talks about how important it is to engage with young people because it has a slight air of you know oh the, the kids are our future kind of um thing and it can seem a bit cringeworthy but actually i think it's both right and important to acknowledge that particularly at this moment in time when i think the challenges of social division um and kind of erosion of of democratic norms and kind of engagement with with the democratic uh, system are really quite pressing and also, I think where you need to acknowledge that young people seem to have quite sort of significantly different attitudes to institutions and their relationship with them than previous generations did. So they they don't seem to have the same sense of identity with things like political parties or perhaps with kind of uh, charities as institutions. They certainly have a lot of the same drive in terms of engagement and wanting to do social good, but they want to do it in different, more kind of flexible, decentralized ways. Uh, and I think it's important to, to acknowledge that in efforts to, to engage them with, with civic life. Um, another big theme that, that comes through um, in the strategy, which I think is really good, um, is a very clear statement um, of the value that the government places in the campaigning role of civil society. Again, this is something that has at various points been slightly forgotten in the desire to kind of highlight the service delivery role of, of charities and voluntary organisations. But, you know, I've, I've always argued, um, for instance, in the book um, that I published a few years back now about the history of um, philanthropy in the UK, that um, the campaigning role of civil society organisations has always been just as important, if not more important, than their service delivery role. And when you look at a lot of the big social advances that have occurred in the UK and elsewhere, you know, over the last couple of hundred years, usually when you look at those, you can identify a very strong thread of civil society involvement um, when it comes to... Uh, identifying those issues in the first place, bringing them to kind of mainstream public attention, pushing the political agenda um, towards uh, adoption of them and resulting in kind of systemic change or legislative change. And you can think of things here like, you know, the abolition of slavery, um, kind of the, the um, extension of the vote to, to women, uh, universal suffrage. Um, and things like uh, establishing the decriminalization of homosexuality and the eventual kind of uh, introduction um, of gay marriage. Um, in all of those things, that, that it seems to be the sort of traje trajectory that you can often identify. Um, so it was very good to see the government putting out such a strong statement um, about the importance of that campaigning role. Um, I think it was also good to see uh, an international element brought into that message. So acknowledging that it's important not just that the UK itself um, kind of uh, is positive about the role of uh, civil society campaigning, 
but also that it acts as a champion globally for the value of civil society campaigning and acts to protect it where that protection is necessary. Um, and I think that's a hugely positive statement because the the phenomenon that we've discussed before on this podcast about the closing space for civil society uh, in various places around the world is a real threat to the the health of, of civil society um, and to democracy more widely. And I think part of the UK continuing to be a defender of democracy on the global stage is to support civil society against that kind of repression and encroachment. So, you know, bravo for that one. Um, I think the one bit of grit in the oyster with this and, and one that, you know, I personally thought was perhaps a missed opportunity, and I think others would much more vocally criticise the government for, was that the the positive tone of, of messaging um, about uh, the importance of campaigning slightly jarred in the context where they didn't at the same time take any visible steps to uh, overturn existing pieces of legislation or regulation or policy that are seen to be quite negative towards um, the campaigning role of of charities. So I'm thinking here of things like the Lobbying Act, which was introduced uh, about four years ago now and uh, introduced restrictions on the ability of uh, charities to spend on political campaigning during election periods. Um, and similarly, the the introduction of clauses um, into government grants and contracts, which prevented money being spent on political lobbying and advocacy. Um, both both of these actually, in, in effect, without going into too much detail, um, haven't um, haven't really impinged that much on any particular organisation because the criteria on which they would be uh, imposed are make it quite unlikely that they would be and also the sort of amounts of money that have to be involved mean that few organizations will get caught by the rules but you know uh, lots of people have, have often pointed out that the the problem is less the that is less the actual uh, implementation of the laws for particular organizations and more the kind of narrative tone they set and the chilling effect they might have in terms of the the way in which it presents the government's view of um of the campaigning role of civil society and and it's quite odd to see the government put out such a positive message about campaigning on the one hand but at the same time in the same document in fact continue to defend the necessity for these kinds of policies so it will be interesting to see how that tension plays out um so moving on to to something else that's uh, a big theme in uh, in the strategy um and that's around kind of welfare and and public services and public service reform now this is um you know an issue that always makes it into government strategies and kind of statements on uh, on the voluntary sector or civil society because it's a huge part of the history um of kind of government views uh, of of civil society in the sector is about where the responsibility for meeting the welfare needs of the populace lie um it, i think this is the the bit of the report that kind of laid it open to most 
um, easy criticism in the short term uh, here in the UK. Firstly, because it has um, very strong echoes of the uh, the big society agenda that was strongly promoted under David Cameron's government, which eventually became a bit of a laughing stock um, and and kind of still carries quite unfortunate connotations. And there were certainly a few articles immediately saying that this strategy was essentially nothing more than a new big society. Um, I think also the as with the big society, the the danger is that uh, ideas about the the relationship between government and uh, civil society when it comes to welfare provision are often fine in isolation, but they these things don't happen in isolation and you know can't can't be viewed in a vacuum. And actually, once you take into account the wider context of um, kind of public finances, they often become much more controversial. Um, and that's certainly the case at the moment. Um, here in the UK, there is at the same time that the strategy was put out a really quite acute crisis in terms of local government funding. Um, it's recently been a lot of stories about Northamptonshire County Council uh, coming to the brink of bankruptcy and having to hold extraordinary meetings um, in order to try and put through plans to cut back its welfare provision to the to the bare bones. And in that context, having the government come out and talk about the desire to involve civil society organizations more in welfare provision inevitably leads to criticism that actually what they're doing is is looking to cut public services or funding for public services further even if i don't necessarily actually think that is the case um in this particular instance but but that's the the kind of the reality of it um I think taking sort of zooming out a bit to, to more of a historical context briefly, um, in, this isn't just about the big society uh, and you know kind of the current context of, of austerity. Uh, the whole conversation about the line between um, you know, state and voluntary sector responsibility for meeting welfare needs is has always been part of the conversation between government and and sort of civil society and every time a major report has been put out by the government on this issue um throughout history um, and certainly sort of since the establishment of the welfare state that has been part of of the the agenda um i think the there's a bit of this narrative in the strategy itself in that it, it acknowledges that a lot of um well pretty much all actually in, in fact the elements of the existing welfare state are things that stemmed from voluntary provision in the victorian era and before and then the strategy says you know over time those things were taken on and expanded by uh, by the government in order to to uh produce a welfare state and then it sort of paints subsequent efforts and efforts now to try and rebalance um that relationship um i think that's in very broad terms right although i think it hides a lot of detail you know in actual fact yes following uh the following the victorian period when the the government had you know little responsibility for for welfare in many areas and 
you know, over time did take on some, but was always a junior partner to philanthropic or voluntary provision. We then saw at the beginning of the 20th century, the the kind of the thinking um, more from, from like liberal uh, strains of thought and philosophy about the ideas of social service and the need to establish universal provision. And people like uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb were, were very influential in their thinking here. And that eventually, I think, laid the groundwork for the establishment after the Second World War of the elements of the the modern welfare state. But actually, when you look at the details of how that was implemented, the really interesting thing is the, the assumption that at that point a decision was taken that the government would... Uh, accept responsibility for delivering all of the elements of that welfare state is totally wrong. Actually, even the the legislation for something like the the NHS didn't specify that the government would have to deliver um, all of the elements of of kind of universal provision of healthcare. All it said was it had a responsibility to ensure that they were delivered, and it left open the question of whether it would simply be uh, a financier of that and uh, achieve those ends by financing. You know, voluntary sector organisations or private sector organisations to do it, or it would do it itself. And actually, it was only really because of the ideological views of Anira and Bevan, who uh, took a very strong position on it and, and nationalised the hospitals, that, that we got the sort of government-led welfare state um, that we did have. Um, and then over time, there was, uh, as it became clear that, you know, the government also wasn't capable of uh, taking on uh, all of the elements of welfare, and there were going to be gaps in provision and a need to challenge provision and augment it. There there was a, a kind of ongoing um, conversation between the state and, and civil society and, and the philanthropy uh, and voluntary sector about you know where where the different elements of that responsibility would settle but it's been you know a, a kind of complex conversation that has gone back and forth over time and i just wanted to to read a quote actually from the nathan committee report which i mentioned earlier just to kind of show you um you know quite how, how long this conversation has been going on and this is from 1952 um and it says at no time can we discern any antithesis between public and private welfare services or the making of any fundamental distinction between their aims and functions. And today, the public services for social welfare are carried out only with the help of innumerable voluntary workers and by making use to an important extent of voluntary agencies. So far from voluntary action being dried up by the extension of the social services, greater and greater demands are being made on it. We believe, indeed, that the the democratic state, as we know it, could hardly function effectively or teach the exercise of democracy to its members without such channels for and demands upon voluntary service, which you know is an amazingly sort of far-sighted view, I think, of the relationship between um, sort of state provision and voluntary provision, and the the additional value that civil society brings to the to the democratic process. But anyway, I will sort of <laughs> put my historical sides to one side um, at that point. Um, I just want to, to talk briefly about a, a couple of other things that were there in the civil society strategy that you know I thought were particularly interesting and important. Um, so one of those is um, a focus on the importance of digital. Um, I personally would say technology because I kind of hate the phraseology of digital and I think it's slightly limiting. But you know I think we know what we all mean there. The the impact of technology um, on civil society, both in terms of the opportunities it affords, but I think also there was some acknowledgement of the challenges it presents 
um, and the need for civil society to kind of address some of those challenges and, and kind of adapt to face up to them, which you know is something I've been working on quite a lot through the work I've been doing on things like blockchain and, and AI for the last few years. So it was very encouraging to see um, that as a very strong theme uh, in the report. Um, as with a lot of areas in the report, I think there was a lot of uh, narrative and ambition around that particular theme and not necessarily a lot of detail about what was to be done about it. Um, but there were a couple of things that the government said there about the need to support civil society to develop the skills to be able to engage with technology issues, which I think is absolutely right, and also um, a recognition of the important convening role that government can play in bringing together the tech industry and charities, which again, I think, you know, the more that they, they can kind of do that and see that as their role, the better. Um Another section um, that was quite, you know, sort of big part of the report that I think is is interesting, and I've, I've touched on a little bit, um, is around the idea of responsible business. Um, so I mentioned up front some of the potential concerns about the way in which civil society has been redefined in the report um, in order to include the private sector. But, you know, a lot of the, the focus within the, uh, the section of the report on that is about the idea of uh introducing principles of responsible business um i think you know that that's absolutely right i think it's very difficult to argue against the idea that you know businesses should see themselves as having responsibilities and uh trying to identify what those responsibilities are and find mechanisms for making businesses commit to them and stick to them um i guess my concern with this section particularly is that you know, having worked in this area of policy for the last 10 years or so, I, I've already seen quite a few instances of the government trying to push forward the responsible business agenda. And they quite often run into difficulties because sometimes principles are drawn so broadly that basically everybody agrees to them up front because they're they're kind of self-evident and, and difficult to argue with but then also because they are so broad it's easy for people to um interpret all of their existing activities um to to kind of prove that they're already meeting those principles um and i think unless you can kind of make the principles uh sufficiently challenging or kind of make them things that are actually require some some kind of effort in order to to meet those requirements um that that is one danger i think the other thing is that government is often quite loath to introduce mechanisms to allow itself to uh to kind of impose the any principles that it that it does set so or mechanisms for either kind of rewarding or punishing uh organizations that fail uh, to meet um, the expectations so they, they often end up having the status of a voluntary code and again that can be problematic if you are trying to push for quite radical change um, but you know uh, the other thing and more positively to be said is that I do think it's important to acknowledge that changes to the way in which businesses work in terms of their behaviors and making those more socially and environmentally beneficial quite often you know a small change in that area can have a much bigger impact given the amounts of money potentially involved than a fairly significant change in terms of uh, kind of civil society or, or charity sector funding so so it's definitely you know an, an idea worth uh, persevering with um 
the final thing that I um, just wanted to pick up on, because I'm in danger of talking far too much for one person and running long, um, is just the, an interesting ambition um, outlined in, in the report in the section on the social sector or around uh, charitable giving to make the UK the world centre for philanthropy practice, which I thought was was very interesting. Um, again, you know, there's not not very much detail at the moment, apart from some uh, highlighting some conversations that have been had and a desire to sort of bring together a steering group to discuss how this might be done. Um, but I think it's you know it's an, an intriguing ambition. Um, I think particularly given you know how much effort it will take to knock the US off off that particular perch. Um, but I guess the reason it's particularly interesting is in the current context where Britain is having a debate in all sorts of ways about what its role in the world will be post-Brexit, the the idea that trying to make philanthropy part of the, the pitch to the rest of the world about Britain on the global stage is, is a really interesting one. So it will be fascinating to see you know, what, what details get filled in on that uh, in kind of in coming months and years um and i guess that's that's kind of the the take more broadly you know with all of this stuff um my response to it as a lot of people's was was broadly positive it's you know it's great that the document is there uh full stop as a, as a strategy and shows a sort of strong commitment from from the government to civil society there is a lot of detail in there and i think lots of things still to be digested but most of it um, has the the status or the kind of the feel of ambition and vision and narrative rather than firm plans for action. So actually, a lot of the the kind of implementation challenge will be in for the government to uh, kind of work within itself and across departments, but also with civil society and the private sector to try and make some of this ambition a reality. And you know, I, I hope uh, to work with them on that, as do plenty of other people, and I hope we get somewhere. Okay, so that's uh, that's the end for your bonus uh, August Civil Society Strategy Spectacular. Um, apologies if I've banged on a bit uh, on some of that, but um, I'm spending quite a lot of time uh, working on my own at the moment. So uh, <laughs> kind of when given the opportunity to talk, I can't really shut up. Um, but it just remains uh, to say uh, that we'll be back properly um, in early September when I've got uh, some really interesting interviews already in the can and some other ones lined up so there's lots to look forward to um other than that if you're interested in the sort of stuff that we've been talking about here on the podcast today check out the giving thoughts section of the CAF website uh follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis uh if you've got ideas for things we could talk about or people that i could interview um drop us a line at giving thought at cafonline.org other than that, uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast, download it, share it with your friends, uh, tell them all about it. Uh, and other than that, I'll see you next time. Okay, bye. <laughs>